We're going to be back in Matthew 18 this morning. You know, while Pastor Everett was watching football, I was studying God's Word. <laughs> you know, that young man should learn not to tamper with the pastor when the pastor's going to be at the mic after he is. It's a little bit like, you know, ragging on your waitress. She has your food before you see it, so you just don't do certain things, but... Um, Yeah, I think they bribed the refs yesterday. But uh, anyway, much rather talk about Jesus, wouldn't you? I trust you've had a good week and a good weekend. Lord's good to us, isn't he? We're going to be in Matthew this morning. We're working our way through Matthew's gospel here at Fellowship Bible Church. We're just taking our sweet time. And uh, we actually started a sermon on church discipline, Matthew 18, on November 6th, and if you want to catch up with that, um, you can go hear the audio of it at our church website. We're going to take a second and review it, but I want to begin in Acts chapter 5, and I think I already asked you to turn to Matthew 18, but why don't you turn to Acts 5, and let's use this incredible story for our introduction this morning. It really sets the stage for the mindset that we want for this message today. Acts chapter 5, um, It's a familiar story if you know uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Those names might ring a bell with you. This is early in the church, um, and it's just the most remarkable story. Let me read it. I use the English Standard Version. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And I say, whoa, whoa. Uh, I don't know if I know 100% what to do with that story. It is most remarkable because you have to recognize that it's, it's church. It's not Old Testament. We're used to this kind of thing in the Old Testament, right? I mean, the sons of Korah uh, offering up an unholy fire, um, Aaron and his golden calf, God opening up the ground, God putting people to the sword, um, the wages of sin is death, and you see it in the Old Testament so vividly. This is post-cross. This is post-resurrection. This is post-ascension. 
This is Acts. This is early church. Now, it is apostolic era. It is a time before the New Testament was completed and the apostles had great authority at this time. They had great power and they worked with great wonders. But you have to stop and ask yourself, well, what is God doing here? And and what if he did it today? I mean, I think we have a room full of sinners. I mean, aren't you thankful for grace? And and we count on that grace, don't we? And this is the church age and the age of grace. and, And yet, God wants to communicate to us. And we don't sin so that grace may abound. God hates sin in the New Testament just as much as He hates sin in the Old Testament. And one of the things you, you see here is just that God cares so much about His church that as it was being established, now as the apostles are planning churches and, and they're teaching and, and the church is beginning to take root and grow, God evidently wanted to, to have a living illustration or a dying illustration. He wanted to show that he cares about holiness in his church. I think that's the main lesson of the story, is that God really, really cares about his church. So much that he implements church discipline himself, personally, in this passage. This passage does raise a few questions. One of the things you need to make sure that you have clear in your mind is that it's not uh, any kind of socialism or communism that was going on in the early church. What you had in the context was a businessman man named Barnabas had evidently been known for his property and his wealth, and he had sold some property, and he had distributed the wealth through the apostles to the needy in the churches. And so, I, you know, I kind of picture that maybe there was a, a testimony service of some needy people who got up and, and they really were really praising the Lord for what Barnabas' gift had done to them, for them. And I guess Ananias and Sapphira really wanted a part of that. And they had some property. They sold their property. And you can see by the way Peter, the apostle, speaks to them that there was no pressure on them to give anything other than what they wanted to give as a love gift. It was their choice. So when you had the property, wasn't it yours? When you sold the property and had the money, wasn't it yours? You could do what you want. So evidently what they had done was they had, they had let it be known that they were going to give all of the money from this property to the Lord's work and it was going to be a love gift for them. And they were deceiving the congregation. And they were holding back that which they had promised the Lord. And Peter, you know, with his ESPN, he could tell something's going on here. And that apostolic power, and kabam, Ananias is on the floor, they carry him out, Sapphira comes in, zap, bang, bam, poof. I mean, you talk about the reality and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I guess so. And as we hear them today, you know, we should tremble. God disciplines his church. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 18 and and let's dig back into this this, uh, church discipline passage. Thankfully, that is uh, almost the limit of God personally disciplining his church in the New Testament. We do have, for example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 in the communion passage there, um, 
where he said, because some had come to the church and partaken of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, they had fallen asleep or died, right? Um, and, and some were very sick. That was God disciplining people for an inappropriate attitude about the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. God disciplines his church. God cares very much about the sanctity and the holiness of his church. Why? It's his body. We are the body of Christ. We probably, I could probably remove the word probably, we don't take seriously enough what this assembly represents here this morning. This is the body of Christ. This is the testimony of Christ in this community. This is, this is the, the, in a sense, the living, breathing Christ in the world today. And I say that carefully. But we are the little Christ who represent Him corporately as His body. That is a profound reality. And He's not goofing around. Well, we don't have too many testimonies in the New Testament church about God zapping people dead like that. And I think it was an illustration early on that God wanted us to understand about His church. But our Lord is teaching in Matthew chapter 18, specifically His disciples... He's teaching them how important it is. Look at verse 14 at the end of that section. And this is an extended section. It's a continuation of where we've been. So it is not my will. It is not the will of my father. Verse 14 of Matthew 18. Who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Remember he was talking about protecting the body of Christ. Protecting believers in God. And for our purposes today we're talking about the church of Christ. Now, this is pre-church, okay? In a way, it's accurate to say that Matthew 18 is Old Testament. Well, we think of it as the New Testament, but it's pre-cross, all right? It's, it's pre-church. And our Lord is going to use the, the word church or ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathering, assembly. He is definitely talking specifically about believers. It is in this context a group of Jewish believers who have gathered at Capernaum and Jesus is teaching them, but he is no doubt laying a foundation for the future of the church and how we are to exercise church discipline in, in our groups, in our identifiable groups of the body of Christ. This is how it works. Well, let's review a little bit. It might help you a little bit to, to grab your notes. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it in this service yet, but you'll notice at the top of your notes, there's the church website. And if you want to catch up on this sermon, you can go there and hear the audio. Um, and forgive me if I already said that um, in this service. But um, that sermon is available from November 6th, and it, I think you'll find it helpful. Uh, we're going to pick up on, and remind ourselves of what we've covered. The first part of that message, we covered the first two points of that message. And this is not the outline of that until we get to Roman number three. But when your brother sins against you was Roman number one of that outline. The question, okay, what do we do when my brother or my sister sins against me? Let's read our text again, Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins against you, here's what you do. You do two things. Number one, you go. And number two, you show. Number one, you go to the offending brother or sister and then you show them their fault. See what it says in the text? If your brother sins against you, and that could be a sister, all right? And in, in some manuscript groupings, it, it does not say against you. And so in some of your translations, I imagine we have a three, four, five, six different translations in our pews, in our chairs today. Um, it will, it, your Bible might say 
And it's an accurate translation. If your brother sins, and it leaves out the word against you. All right? If your brother sins. We're talking specifically about sin in the church. And with that phrase, against you, which was in the group of manuscripts that they use for the ESV, the idea is at least if it's not exclusively a sin against you personally, it is a sin that you know about personally that is in the church. So it may or may not be exactly a sin that affronted you. It likely is, but it involves you because you have specific information. So you know that a brother or sister has sinned and there's sin that they're not dealing with. The first thing you do is you go to them, okay, and you show them and you describe that fault. And between you and him alone, if he listens to you, end of verse 15, you have gained your brother. And that's that precious restoration of the joy of Christian fellowship and sin taken care of. And, and you know that you are to do it in such a way uh, that helps them. Okay, the second part of our sermon was, okay, what do we do then when our brother refuses to listen? Because that can happen. Okay, I go to this person, I talk to them, and... You know, I think it's a good idea for all of us this morning to commit to verse 15. That we would be the kind of Christian. That we would be so focused on our desire to please Christ. That if I have a Christian brother or sister who is so concerned about my walk with Christ. And so concerned about the church. That when they come to me, I would have ears to hear. Now, the natural reaction though is what? If you point out something that I've done wrong, what am I going to do? I'm going to show you what you've done wrong. And when you go take care of that, then you come talk to me and we're getting ready to duke it out. And that's why our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount reminded us, right? Get the beam out of your own eye before you start speck picking out of someone else's eye. The idea here is that sometimes my brother or my sister will refuse to listen. And so verse 16, but if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's an important phrase, that two or three witnesses. That's going to come up at the end of our text. It's often misunderstood. So the idea is, okay, this individual, there's unconfessed sin. It's either directed at me or I know specifically about something that's going on and it has burdened me to the degree that I must deal with it. I go to him. He refuses to be heard. We don't have that precious restoration. We don't have a broken heart over sin. We have a a harder heart. He refuses to listen. So I go get two or three others, one or two or three others, and I bring them in to be witnesses of this conversation, to be character witnesses for me. They might have noticed this sin as well. They might have been witnesses. It doesn't say in the text that they were witnesses of that specific sin, but they are to witness the conversation and the confrontation for sure. Listen, let's remind ourselves, though, that we will always approach this person in loving humility, right? In loving humility. Galatians 6 talks about this in the beginning of Galatians chapter 6. And remember that it says there to come to that person gently, carefully, lest you fall into the same sin. Because don't we love, don't we love to point out other people's sin that we are exactly guilty of? There's something about our sin gauge inside us that when we're guilty of something, we are exceptionally good at pointing that out at other people. 
Do it carefully, do it gently, do it lovingly. See, this is a spiritual responsibility. I don't know if I said that up under number one, the first bullet point. It is a spiritual responsibility because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, You who are spiritual. Now, I suspect that that's one reason why some of us don't really want to get involved in this. It's like, okay. So you think that you are so spiritual that you can come to me and point out my sin. You know what the answer is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have examined my heart, and I need you to know that my heart is broken for you. I want to know, you need to know that I, I've lost my appetite over this. I didn't sleep well. This is bothering me. The Holy Spirit is weighing on me, and I am coming to you not because this is fun, but because I love you and because I love Christ church. And I refuse to look the other way when this sin is ongoing. And I come before you just as carefully and as gently as I know how. Would you please respond? You know, we should commit as a church that if somebody does that to us, that we would respond, right? That we would say yes. So in loving humility with limited publicity, notice that, back down under number two, with limited publicity, verse 16, so we're still only engaging two or three witnesses, all right, so that we can deal with this because we want to preserve Christian community. We want to preserve the Christian community. So we don't want this word spreading through the body. We don't want everybody and their cousin to know about it because that will only cause problems and it's none of their business. We're wanting to preserve unity. We're not wanting to ostracize people. So we're always doing this to preserve relationship, to restore relationship, preserve community. And number two, we want to deal with this offense and sin with finality. You don't want this thing to string on. You want it to be dealt with, and once and for all, let's deal with it. It's under the blood of Christ. It's been buried at the foot of the cross. It is over. It is dealt with, and relationship is restored, and the reputation of Christ's church is preserved. Let's take just a minute, and let's look at the last couple verses of the book of James in our New Testament. Hebrews, James. It's towards the end of your New Testament, if you're new to the New Testament. And in the book of James, in chapter 5, look at verses 19 and 20. He talks about this kind of thing. The end goal of, of a spiritual person confronting somebody who has sin in their lives, what it is they're supposed to do about it. All right? Uh, James chapter 5, verse 19. Look what he says. My brothers, so he's writing to believers in Christ. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. That's easy to do, isn't it? Just get kind of calloused. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. That's your job. Go after the wandering sheep. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's our goal. Our goal is restoration. This is possibly speaking of a believer whose life could be terminated because of sin unto death. The idea is that their sin is such a disgrace to the body of Christ that God will just call them home and get them out of the way. Or it's evidence because of their lack of sensitivity to sin that they're not believers in Christ at all anyway. And they're going to have to pay the price for their own sin. They will pay the wages for their own sin. So that's the wonderful thing about being in Christ, right? I don't have to pay the wages for my own sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Praise God. Have you been to the cross? 
That's the wonderful thing about the cross. That is where Jesus shed his blood, paying the death penalty for our sins, the sins of the world. And we go to the cross to lay down our burden of our sin and by faith to take on his righteousness. That the righteousness of Christ, which I do not deserve, is mine. And that my dirty, rotten, sinful acts and deeds and heart were put on Christ as though he owned all of that and did all of that. And he paid the price and satisfied the demands of a just and holy God, our Heavenly Father. And now I can stand before him just because I've been to the cross by faith, accepting this free gift of salvation done by Christ. He, he satisfied the justice demand of a holy God. And he gave me that satisfaction. The atoning sacrifice, the propitiation became mine. And I can stand before a holy God as though I were, in, as though I were Christ himself. He gave me his righteousness. He did it. He earned it. He gave it away for free. He didn't sin. He took it on himself, my sin, and paid the price. That is the gospel. That's the good news. That I have a great exchange that took place at the cross. I exchanged my sinfulness for his righteousness so that I am now pleasing unto God through Christ alone, through faith alone. He said, look, you'll save that sinner from his wandering, save his soul from death, and that will cover a multitude of sin. The sin will stop. There won't be more sin adding up. It won't permeate the body of Christ. Sin begets more, begets more sin, right? Sin spawns more sin. And you can stop that. The end goal is restoration. It is preservation of the Christian community and it is to deal with sin and offenses with finality. Well, we're now to the point where we want to pick up point three. This was where we stopped in our November 6th message. And we have this whole question then, okay, then what do I do when my brother, if he hardens his heart? Okay, so step one, I've been offended, sinned against, or I know about a sin. I go to him one-on-one. He rejects that. Relationship is not restored. Okay, fellowship is not renewed. I take one, two, or three people with me. He still rejects them. And now we're at a place where he's hardened his heart. This can happen, can it? We fall in love with our sin and we become angry. When our brother hardens his heart, the first thing he tells us in verse 17, letter A, is that we engage now the congregation. We engage the congregation. Look what it says, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. There's the word church. The word is the ecclesia, the called out ones. It's translated church in our New Testament. And I think Jesus is speaking specifically of a gathering there that day, but he's laying a foundation for the church here as we know it. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the first thing you do, you engage the congregation, verse 17, letter B, then you implement excommunication. That is, you exclude them from the fellowship of believers. And I tell you, this is not easy to do. It's very hard to do. In fact, you know what people almost always will do at this point? They will, A, refuse to talk to you or meet with you, and B, they will resign their church membership. That's what will happen. So we get together. We have someone we have to deal with. We have run through these steps, and we go to this dear brother or sister, and we will go to them as carefully as we know how. Listen, this is what I say when I'm involved. I'll say, as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, I, I exhort you in the name of Christ as lovingly as I know how. Please stop this. Please 
please forsake this. Get right with God. Come back. They'll say no. And, and I'm resigning my membership. I remember situations where people don't want to talk to you. They don't want you on your property. Listen, if you have been engaged in the body of Christ and you've been part of the fellowship of believers and you find yourself in a place where spiritual leaders or brothers and sisters in Christ who care about you and love you, what a privilege that is. They care about you and they love you and they come to you and you find yourself angry with them in your heart, wishing them off your property, refusing to speak to them and resigning your church membership. You better wake up because you're in high weeds spiritually. You do not want to walk out from underneath the umbrella of the fellowship of believers. That is a place of grace, my friend. The church is a place of grace and safety and protection. And if you're in sin and somebody comes after you and asks you to stop sinning and you push them away and you leave and you remove yourself, you are living in in a dangerous spot. Now, let me make clear that I'm not talking about like a sin Gestapo in the church. I'm not talking about like you're walking around with this big old sin magnifying glass and you're looking for sin. Listen, sin's not hard to find, is it? Just talk to my wife. The flesh is so weak, isn't it? I'm talking about, talking about a, a, a kind of sin that is prevalent, that is an offense, that is clearly a sin, and you a, either don't recognize it or you don't care to recognize it, and you need help for someone in your life to point that out and help you deal with it. If I were you, and I hope I can always be this way, I would love that person. And I also know that it's not a sin police with their big magnifying glass. It's also kind of hard to know when to engage people and how to engage. Because, for example, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 17. Proverbs 26, 17 says this. He who meddles in, the, in a quarrel that is not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Okay, so it's a proverb, so you have to kind of think about it. All right, so he who meddles or gets involved in a quarrel that's not your quarrel. All right, so somebody comes to you and says, I need you to come with me to, de- to deal with this. Eh, it's not my problem. You deal with it. I don't want to get involved in controversy. You're dealing with somebody else's quarrel. It can be like a dog grabbing a dog by the ears. The idea is like your neighbor's big German shepherd comes running through. You grab him by the ears. And you know what you say next? Now what? Now what do I do? I have this dog by the ears and I can't hold him very long. He's going to scratch the living daylights out of me. Or if I let go of him, he's going to be able to bite me. And the conclusion is this. I should have never gotten involved. I should have never grabbed that dog by the ears. Now what? And that's a little bit what what he's talking about here. The idea is, okay, you've got to get engaged here. You've got to love your brother or sister in Christ so much that you're willing to involve yourself in their life. But it is always with loving humility and with just a careful examination of your own heart that you're doing something that is spiritual and not of the flesh. You're not trying to embarrass somebody. You're not trying to just be a busybody in the church. And it's not easy. It's not easy. So he says here, you implement this excommunication, which means to exclude them from the church. And so you say, okay, let's look at some biblical examples of this because it's very helpful. 
Now, we're not just making this stuff up. And in fact, the Apostle Paul taught this as well. Let's look at Romans chapter 16, okay? Romans chapter 16. Um, This is the Apostle Paul concluding his letter to the Roman believers. And in this letter, he concludes with verse 17, wrapping it up. And he reminds them with an appeal. He said, I appeal to you, brothers. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Here it is. Avoid them. Avoid them. Exclude them. Move them out of the way. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. Now he's talking specifically about false doctrine here, but at some level... Isn't it every time that we engage in sin or let ourselves, let our guard down in sin, it is at some level serving our own fleshly appetites, isn't it? And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil. All right, listen. These guys are teaching false doctrine. You are to avoid them, Paul says. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, That's getting towards the end of your New Testament, right before 1 and 2 Timothy. And Titus is 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6 through 15, we have a very interesting passage. And if you young people, I want you to listen to this passage if you haven't been listening, because it's a really important lesson here for you old people too. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonian believers, writing to brothers, we command you, brothers. Okay, so this is not a suggestion. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that here it is, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, like as missionaries, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. All right? So the point is, the Apostle Paul is addressing now idleness or people who refuse to work hard. Young people, this is a really good lesson. So I'll tell you, set yourself apart with your work ethic. Work hard. Be a hard worker. If you're a young man, get yourself ready to support a wife and a family and work really hard and be a hard worker and a provider. That's what God wants us to be. And the Apostle Paul said, you need to imitate us. You don't sit around lazy and idle. We could have gotten support from you. We could have let you feed us and we could have just eaten in your homes. But and he did his tent making work for, for pay so that he could support himself because the people were poor enough. They didn't need to have a burden of, the, of Paul supporting Paul and his counterparts with him. And he says, and we did this so that you could imitate our work ethic. And then he says this, look at verse 9. It wasn't because we do not have the right to do this. and give, We gave ourselves an example, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So this is something that Paul would say when he was with them. Now he's writing them back. He's already been with them and he's referencing when he was there. Here's the command we would give you. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. Wow. Work. 
If anyone is not willing to... But it, but it doesn't stop there. Look at this. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In other words, stop talking and get to work. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now watch it. Here it is again. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But do not regard him as an enemy, but as a brother. That's a good reminder at the end, isn't it? Listen, we're not down. We're not we're not trying to tear people down. We're trying to bring people in and strengthen them and restore and renew and refresh. Well, we have it for false doctrine. We have it for idleness. There's one more. Let's quickly look at it. And this is the most graphic. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is the incredible situation. In fact, let's just read a first few verses and get the context. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. Paul writing the church at Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed. There it is. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Excommunicate him. Expel him from the body. For though absent in the body. Now I want you to note this verse because it's going to come up in the end of our Matthew passage in a minute. Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, okay, as if I were there, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now notice again, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. I want you to remember that phrase. Paul says, I will be with you in spirit. It's a manner of speaking. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I take it that in some congregational gathering, in some setting, sometimes churches will do this on a communion Sunday. Sometimes churches will call a membership meeting. The larger the church gets, the more difficult it is. Because we don't know who's here. We don't know who all has been and what's going on and what you did last night. And it's hard to keep track. It's, it's difficult. And we'll have a membership meeting and take care of this quietly, gently, but yet in a public forum where the church or the congregation has an awareness of what's going on. Paul says they will deliver them over to Satan. He doesn't give us the words for that ceremony. The idea is that you would commit that person to Satan Satan, so that the flesh will take over. In other words, that it would almost accelerate their sinfulness. Get them out from underneath the grace umbrella of the church and let the, let the reign of the world fall upon them to the degree that their sin accelerates and they become so miserable they wake up and they recognize they better run to the cross or they're going to die. That's the prodigal son, isn't it? In his riotous living, and then one day slopping hogs and being so hungry that he reaches down into the slop, the slop, and he pulls up an apple core or some kind of, you know, corn husks, and he starts chewing on it for nourishment, and he wakes up and he realizes, look what sin has done to me. And he runs to his father. That's what he's talking about. Let sin and Satan have their way so that they'll run back to their father. Okay, let's let our eyes go down to verse 9 now. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. There's that separation. 
He clarifies himself in verse 10, though, and he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? So you get up tomorrow morning and you say, you know, I heard a message yesterday. I got to separate from all these sexually immoral people and swindlers and idolaters and lovers of money and all this evil. And Paul says, I'm not talking about the people in the world. Look what he says. If you were going to do that, you would need to get out of this world. You can't, you can't get away from them. You know that. You know it better than I. But now, verse 11, I'm writing to you. There it is. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Shall we add sister? If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, that's what Jesus meant back in Matthew 18, where he said, "Okay, treat them now like a tax collector or a Gentile, because to his Jewish audience, there's two people they would not have had at their table. They would not have had a tax collector at their table because they were turncoats. They were people who were not trustworthy. They were people who would steal off of you. So you kept yourself away from them. And secondly, you would not have a Gentile at your table because they were unclean. And you wouldn't have somebody unclean at your table. You would separate from them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. There it is. That's really straightforward, isn't it? Wow. Purge the evil person from among you. Why would we do that? 1 Corinthians 5, 6 has the answer. If you look up at verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's why we do it. Because sin permeates. Sin spreads like rotten potatoes. You're sitting there and you thought they were good and the next thing you know, they're all juiced up because some of them were rotten and it spread. And remember, we're doing this to preserve the integrity of the testimony of Christ. We're doing this because he loves his church and gave himself up for it. Let's finish now in Matthew 18. There's some very interesting statements that Jesus makes now. Okay, so, so we know what to do when our brother sins against us. We know what to do when he refuses to listen. And now he's t- teaching us what to do when your brother hardens his heart. You engage the congregation. You implement excommunication or exclusion. And then thirdly, he's going to share some very interesting verses. And, and what he's telling them, okay, so know that this is, a, this is very much in the context of teaching about this discipline. He's not starting a new topic, all right? Because these verses are highly misunderstood. And if you take them out of context, then you don't know what to do with them. In the context, it makes sense, okay? And he's saying, letter C, you can count on divine confirmation, all right? So what I think saying, our Lord is teaching them, this is so important, it's not easy, you gotta deal with it before the congregation, you're gonna come up with 99 different questions to ask, all right? Well, what if he's my cousin? And we go deer hunting together every year. Do do I go deer hunting with him this year? What if it's my husband? What if it's my wife? What do I do? How do I do? All kinds of things. It's it's very difficult. You have to be. There's not a there's not a bullet point list of every scenario in Scripture. That's why God gave the church elders and spiritual leaders, and why we prayerfully consider what do we do in this situation. And we have to figure out what God wants us to do, and how do we? We know we're to back them out of fellowship, and it's very difficult. 
And he says, look at now he wants them to understand. And this is very important because look at the word. Okay, so you're to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's the last thing he said. And remember that this is an ongoing sentence. Verse 18. Then he says, truly, I say to you. Okay, so I'm going to make a very important point here about what we've just been talking about. Truly, I say to you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Almost all commentaries agree that that was a a common, familiar, rabbinical saying of the day that the Jewish audience would have recognized. So the idea was that they were used to a rabbi or a spiritual teacher in teaching them something that if they... Okay, so the idea of binding or loosing as the rabbis would have taught it, was the idea that these were terms, okay, binding would have been, that's forbidden. If we're binding it, we're forbidding it, okay? And if we're loosing it, it means we're permitting it. And the rabbis were continually making up rules about what was permitted and what was forbidden. We're binding this. And to add leverage to their teaching, they would convince everybody that if we bound it on earth, it's bound in heaven. In other words, even if you don't believe us, you better know that because we bound it, it's bound in heaven. And then when we permit it, heaven will permit it. In other words, um, you know, God is on our side. And Jesus is using that phrase, and that's exactly what he's teaching. That when your spiritual leaders and when your spiritual congregation are dealing with you and they have forbidden now this fellowship or they have restricted your fellowship among the believers and you are no longer permitted in, you are bound. Jesus is telling them, know that when you do this, what you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. In other words, number one, be assured of heaven's or God's approval of what you're doing. God is with you doing this. It's a spiritual reality. I think that's what it teaches. Now make sure you don't take this out of context because people do this. This is, a, this is a great verse for people to abuse. And people go around binding things. I'm going to bind Satan. You can't bind Satan. You're going you're to bind your daughter's boyfriend and, and get him rid of him. Some spiritual hocus pocus prayer. We're going to bind him. You can't bind him. It's, he's talking specifically about spiritual people in the congregation who are restricting or permitting the fellowship of a disciplined believer and what they bind in the church is bound in heaven. And it makes it all the more serious then if you disregard your spiritual leaders because God has given them permission. Look at the second thing he says in verse 20. Excuse me, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, you take this verse out and people get together. Hey, come on over, man. Where two of us agree that I ought to have this new Ford pickup truck, God's going to give it to us. And people will turn that into some kind of health and wealth gospel prayer. And God promised, no, he's talking about church discipline and the two people who have gathered are dealing with the offending brother and they are binding this person or they are limiting the restriction of this person or it's a result of the disciplinary process and they are praying and they need to know that they they can be assured of God's engaging with them in this process. That as you commit this to prayer... That God is with you and he's going to answer your prayer. He's going to help you with this. He's going to strengthen you. That's how I take this verse. And then verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
This is the two or three who have gathered to confront the sinning individual. Listen, it's so hard. It's so difficult. And God wants you to know, and this is where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. Jesus is teaching. It's the same thing. Remember I told you to remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the Apostle Paul said, when you're gathered together, commit this person to Satan and I will be with you in spirit. I think it's the same exact principle. In other words, the spiritual leaders in Corinth had the assurance that they had the backing of the Apostle Paul so they would follow through with the discipline. And in the same way, Jesus says, when you do this, know that I am with you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm with you. You have my backing. And the idea here is when two or three are gathered together, be assured of God's presence or Christ's presence with you. His very presence will be there in this difficult process. This verse is also taken out of context all the time. You know how we use this verse, okay? We have missionary prayer time tonight. And we're going to gather around the table, and we're going to be really disappointed in the turnout. Maybe we won't. Let's say we're going to be disappointed in the turnout, and only a handful of people show up. And we were hoping for 50 people at our prayer time tonight. But only a couple show up, and you know what somebody's going to say? Yeah, but where two or three are gathered together in his name, then he's in our midst. Well, I'll tell you, he's out there in that foyer right now, empty. He's there if there's one person there. It's not what it's talking about. Now, you can be encouraged by that. It is a reality that where two or three believers are together, there's God in the midst. He's talking about when two or three of you have to get together and you have to go confront and your palms are sweating and you're dealing with church discipline and you're dealing with getting sin out of the church. And this thing is getting really difficult because your brother has hardened his heart. If the two of you have gathered to do this, know that I'm right there in your midst. Isn't that encouraging? I think that's exactly what it's talking about. So be very careful with these verses. And I think it's spiritual truths that Jesus is saying to encourage the disciples to follow through with this. You can do this. The very things that you bind or permit or forbid on earth will be backed up in heaven. Two of you agree in prayer over this thing, then go ahead and do it. I assure you I'm with you and I'll answer that prayer. And if you gather to do this, I'll be right there in your midst. It's all about church discipline. It's what it's about. So you know, in conclusion, quickly, as we just drive home a couple thoughts in our minds, this is a sensitive subject. It's hard to know what to do with everything. There's always all kinds of residual effect that it's hard to know what to do with. But the reality is that as Jesus teaches this passage, that if there's sin in the church... That makes your business my business. That makes your business my business, right? And can we commit to being the kind of church that is thankful that I have brothers and sisters around me who will make my business their business if I'm sinning? Do you realize what a privilege that is? Do you realize what a a sanctifying thing it is? To have people around you who will love you enough and love Christ enough and, and, and are and are protective of the purity of the church enough to look at you and tell you the truth in a loving manner in Jesus' name. If it involves sin, then my business is your business. Secondly, a holy church is paramount for the gospel to accomplish its work, isn't it? You know how to put a lid on this ministry? Do you know how to stop the word of God from accomplishing its work? Do you know how to render the gospel ineffective for us to tolerate and ignore sin in the body? It's all we have to do. It's all we have to do. Just 
Hey, it's all good, man. It's like the church at Corinth. You remember what Jesus, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 to the church at Corinth when he said to them, but you are proud. You know what they were proud of? They were proud that they were such a distinctively grace-focused church. That's what it was. We are so loving and we are so filled with grace that everybody's welcome here all the time, no matter what. That's not true. That is not true. And Peter illustrated it with Ananias and Sapphira. You are not welcome in this body. And in fact, God's taking you home right now. Bam. If we ignore sin, we render the work of the gospel ineffective. We neuter it. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. Thirdly, anytime a believer hardens his heart, it should break mine, right? That's the attitude this whole thing is taught in, presented in. If, if I have a brother or sister who's hardened their heart, it ought to break my heart. Well, it's important for us to be the kind of church that protects itself from sin lovingly, graciously, but firmly. That we care about the gospel doing its work. That we protect the holiness of our church with an attitude of humility and love for the gospel, for Christ, and for one another. Amen? And why don't you stand and let's close in prayer. So, Father, we need your help with these matters. This structure or, or skeleton of teaching that we've received is a guide. So would you show us how to live it out? Help us to put away our, our fleshly, arrogant, sin-magnifying glasses. But help us to have the mind and eyes of Christ and to imitate the Apostle Paul and to have a humble, gracious, gentle spirit of love for one another to the degree that we wouldn't dare look the other way if our brother or sister is sinning. We love them too much. We love your gospel too much. We need your gospel. We need your church to be strong and, and you desire a pure and holy church. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your patience and the gentle way that you deal with us. But help us also to realize the seriousness of sin, that we would be a testimony for Christ in this dark and dying world. Encourage us through this, challenge us and teach us, I pray in Jesus' name.